Hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of the In The Hub podcast, brought to you by Playbox Technology UK. This week we're speaking to Adrian Ball, CEO at CineLab London. Adrian's incredible career in film and broadcasting makes him an expert on all things film, with CineLab London being the only full-service film laboratory in the UK. Hope you enjoy Awesome. So welcome to the podcast today, Adrian. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Neil. Enjoying, well, it's not really the great British summer, is it? <laughs> it's middle of August and we're waiting for summer to start, but hopefully we keep getting promised a heat wave next week, but it seems to always be a week away. I know. I, I, I think they're kind of just leading us on with that, aren't they, this news of a heat wave? Because like you said, I, I checked up last week. It was like, well, it's, it's, it's not certain to happen. Um, and I'll check this week and like you say it'll be postponed a week so <laughs> I think we're just getting led into winter aren't we? It's just, it's just to try, try and keep everybody's hopes up. No I completely agree. Um, so yeah Adrian uh, just for a little bit of background before we do start in some of these main questions we've got for you uh, roughly how did your kind of career in broadcasting and, and, and media start where did it all begin for you? Oh my gosh I am um, well so I had no intentions of going into the media in industry um i guess i went to a school probably as same for most where you know careers careers didn't really understand what the media industry was about didn't sort of figure on it and it's i guess it's a relatively small industry and certainly was back then as, as well um so i was supposed to study architecture i was supposed to go to um umist in 1987 to study architecture i took a year out it was um it was the anticipation of getting myself stuck into a seven-year course. I thought it'd be worth taking a year out. Wanted to go traveling the world, which which my parents were very happy for me to do, providing I financed it myself. So um, ended up getting a job temping, and literally the first job I got as a temp was for a van driver for the British Film Institute, um, based based in in Soho. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very very long story, but I'll try and make it short. Within um, Within a couple of weeks of van driving and probably making a nuisance of myself more than anything else at all the places that I had to stop to drop off film and pick film up and, you know, talking to people, um, ended up within a couple of weeks getting seconded to the London Film Festival, which was, I guess, October 87, and worked as an assistant, sort of film technician, prepping film, um, and I'd run a film club at school. So I was sort of reasonably familiar with celluloid film at that stage. In the three weeks that I was seconded to the London Film Festival, by the end of it, I'd been offered a full-time job. Um, I trained as a projectionist. I worked as a film and video technician um, at the Museum of the Moving Image, which opened in 1988 and was there for a couple of years before. I sort of decided I was reaching the limit of my probably you know, understanding more than anything and really needed to go and study again. I'd had, you know, been really, really lucky to be working in a great environment with great people, exposed to lots and lots of, you know, <clears throat> interesting sides of the of the industry from, from that stage at the British Film Institute, but decided to go and um, study broadcast engineering at Ravensbourne. So um, bizarrely, my excursion you know, away from film was very much driven by the fact that I thought the future was going to be video and digital. And we were already doing presentations in the late 80s on high definition. Um, and it seemed like film wasn't 
going to be around for very long and video ultimately would replace it. So studying broadcast engineering seemed like a really, really good, um, really yeah. good move. It's almost weird that it's come full circle like that. And you, you are obviously specialising in film now. And I, I just think it's, it's interesting to hear, obviously, that... Uh, your kind of first kind of uh, introduction to to film was just a temp job. Like it was no grand plan for you. You weren't as a child experienced something that made you want to you be involved in that. You know, I don't think that's any less valid than than the people who do plan it throughout their whole lives. Clearly, because obviously you've been successful. Um, you know, I just think that's really interesting how like a split moment. You know, being right place, right time uh, can have such a massive impact on your career. Uh, absolutely, and and it was probably. Yeah, and I think this is still something that's very much the same in the industry now as it was 30 plus years ago, was its enthusiasm and interest and sort of commitment and dedication, which makes the difference in the industry. It's the things that people recognise and pick up on. And it's the reason why, you know, people can join the industry as runners and progress to directors and cinematographers. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, it's because of that... Um, sort of drive to, to, you know, get involved, you know, help out, do whatever you can to make things work. And that, um, you know, the BFI at that stage, it was, you know, there was a lot going on and I was really, really lucky just to be around, you know, quite a, quite a, quite a lot of people that were very happy to sort of share their knowledge. And um, and that's what sort of sparked my passion for, for getting involved in this. Yeah, hundred percent. And you, you kind of briefly mentioned celluloid in in, in filmmaking uh, in your previous answer, Adrian. Uh, so it's fair to say that obviously you guys at CineLab, you're big advocates of using old school film for productions. Uh, was there ever a kind of doubt in your mind? And I think you've almost already answered this in, in obviously you going into broadcast engineering. But was there ever a kind of significant doubt in your mind that there would be a big resurgence of using old school film uh, over recent years? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, particularly after we'd started CineLab in 19, sorry, 19, in, in uh, 2013. You know, really, my interest in doing this was, you know, I, I was CTO of um, Deluxe at that time, but previously being at Ascent, I'd also been at Technicolor and was watching a very rapid demise of film, you know, in those com companies between sort of 2010, which people probably wouldn't realise, but was actually the sort of height of revenues for, for celluloid film, and that, that was the peak of, of film distribution. Um, and that's a really, really big, you know, amount of money that was generated for the film laboratories that were making all of the film prints that were going out into distribution around the world. Um, it went from sort of hero in 2010 to, to virtually nothing by 2013, 2014, as digital cinema um, succeeded it and, and displaced it very, very quickly. Um, and an awful lot of that was very much the economics of, of the situation. Um, film prints were really expensive. The distribution, physical distribution was, was expensive. And then there was the reliability of running these film prints, you know, for weeks at a time in a, in a cinema. Um, whereas switching over to digital um, cinema, digital distribution, it became a reliable, repeatable um, solution. And it was easy to distribute that content ultimately. And it was easy to replicate that content. So it was sort of inevitable that, 
um, film for projection would very much suffer and be a, be a casualty. Um, but the byproduct of that was that shooting on film was compromised significantly because if you could imagine, you know, in the Western world, um, Technicolor and Deluxe pretty much were the two leaders and had been for a hundred years in that space. And their lab operations, which literally employed thousands of people, um, you know, 90, 95% of those revenues came from print um, replication and distribution. And it was, you know, a fraction of it that was really around people shooting on film. Um, so in that very short period of time, watching the demise of print distribution in the cinema, um, it was inevitable that Deluxe and Technicolor would struggle to sustain their lab operations to support people that wanted to shoot on the film. Um, so really, you know, my, my interest in getting involved in this was sort of taking what was a relatively small trailer lab, um, Bucks Laboratories as it was, it had been around for over 30 years. It was very heavily involved in the logistics of making lots and lots of short run trailers, compiling those, you know, to create the, the trailer builds that would then physically go out to the cinemas and run on the beginning of those films. Um, their business just absolutely fell over in a very, very short period of time with that transition. And what we saw was the opportunity to take the embryo of a photochemical lab operation and repurpose it to be able to provide front-end um, developing services to support people that still wanted to shoot on film. Um, in terms of whether there was any doubt, um, I'd say probably every day for probably the first couple of years, you know, I questioned whether or not I'd made a massive, massive mistake and whether or not this was going to turn around. And, um, you know, I often look back at it and think it was only sort of tenacious determination that, that sort of allowed us to survive through that period. Um, but, I guess the big thing was in 2015 winning um, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, which, um, which shot on film. And um, it was obviously a big Lucasfilm um, Disney project. Um, to go you know, within three years of establishing a new operation, a new lab operation, to processing one of the biggest franchised films on the planet was really, really quite a remarkable um, situation. And I guess that was the time, you know, where all of a sudden people took us seriously. It was like, here's this little Evan Slough that's just started up. It started up pretty much after films completely died. And as far as everyone's concerned, it's sort of, you know, it was the past. Um, to all of a sudden, you know, Hollywood studios looking at going, well, this little lab in Slough is capable of, of um, processing film for our, for our worldwide international feature on this brand. And um, so I guess, our, you know, always our consideration was that we would probably appeal to the independent um, filmmakers, you know, the niche sort of dramas, period, um, period features, um, so to end up with a sort of sci-fi blockbuster, you know, it was really, really quite major. And then, you know, since then we've done Mission Impossible 7, we've done Wonder Woman 2, we've done the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. 
you know, these are really, really massive franchise films and it's sort of probably a surprise for a lot of people that they are actually shot on film. Yeah. You know, we can talk about pixels, we can talk about resolution, we can talk about dynamic range. What, what is really, really difficult for people to um, put a number on is the aesthetics of the difference of the look of something that's been acquired on film compared to something that's been shot digitally. And, you know, we rather flippantly refer to it as big video versus film. It, you know, so it doesn't matter whether it's 4K or 8K. Um, it's fundamentally big video. And the way that a digital camera sensor captures an image is very, very difficult to, to the way a piece of um, film emulsion captures an image. Um, and luckily, you know, people recognize that. And the bit that's really, really important is it doesn't matter about digital distribution. It doesn't matter about digital center. It doesn't matter about watching stuff on your mobile phone. The essence and look of, of that original capture on film is still conveyed through those digital mediums and through transmission um, such that you can spot the difference between something that was acquired on film and something that was acquired digitally. Um, so, you know, and thankfully there's still that recognition, but I guess, you know, probably people mistakenly would think that it's the, sort of the diehard film um, aficionados that continue to shoot on film. But what we've seen in, you know, the eight years of CineLab is a tremendous eagerness from up and coming directors and cinematographers who are absolutely digital native millennials to shoot on film and it's for a lot of people it's seen as the sort of holy grail of filmmaking you've not shot a film unless you've shot on celluloid film yes yeah and that's a brilliant place to be in isn't it um for you guys especially i think yeah it's, it, hopefully you're now at that point where if there was any doubt that's kind of been erased i i think so i mean i think we you know i'd say the biggest challenge we'll typically have is over budget um you know Undoubtedly, one of the things that's really, really key to film is its costs are proportional to your shooting ratio. So if you've got to shoot a load, if you've got to shoot twice as much as you were expecting, it's going to cost you twice as much. It's twice as much film stock, it's twice, twice as much processing, it's twice as much scanning to create those files. And that's really where the biggest difference between film and digital is. If you've got a reasonably well-scripted, well-planned um, program and you've got a reliable craft, uh, cast and crew you can shoot with a reasonably modest shooting ratio and your, your budget can absolutely be comparable to a digital budget um, but you know unfortunately people mistakenly think that it is only the domain of the big studio blockbusters and the majority of films that we do have to say are relatively low budget you know they'll be between anything between sort of a million and 10 million budget and they'll still justify shooting on film and it's a relatively small um component of that budget in the scheme of things yeah um so you know that's that's quite a, a key point for people to understand and that's that's really the biggest challenge we have is getting that message through to through to people that believe me it's not the only people in the world that are shooting these these films on film because they've got massive budgets there are lots and lots of other people that are shooting on film because they know how it works and um and they can justify the budgeting for it 100 percent. 
Um, and uh, I know you touched on a few of the projects that obviously you guys are working on, Adrian. What kind of projects do you find yourself working on at, at, at Cine Lab? Is there a kind of a specific genre or a type of project that obviously seems to gravitate towards using film or like you've kind of discussed there is it a really a mixed bag I think you know we would always look at it and consider it to be the sort of period films you know you know if you want to set something in the in the 19th century or 18th century then shooting it on film is always going to look um authentic you know from the start but having said that, the sort of char- characteristic look of, of sort of dramas and TV programmes that were shot in the 90s, or, you know, 80s and 90s, is very characteristic of uh, Super 16 millimetre film. And there's a tremendous resurgence at the moment of people using Super 16. Um, we've just done a series for Netflix that shot on Super 16. Um, and... You know, probably 10 years ago, people would have thought that Super 16 mil was sort of a redundant format. But that because of the advent of HD and higher resolution, that rather inaccurately, people were misled to believe that Super 16 mil wasn't high resolution, it wasn't high def resolution. And, you know, I was very, inv- very heavily involved in this. Um, this situation in the late 2000s, sort of 2008, when this problem came about. And, you know, I'd launched the first HD channel in the UK for Discovery back in 2006. So I've got quite a reasonable amount of experience in the broadcast transmission side of things. But the problem was the 12 megabit transmission channel we had for HD at that time didn't stand up particularly well um, to super 16 mil content, particularly with a very fast 500t stock so you know that grain structure caused a massive massive overhead to compression and as a result the pictures didn't look great because there was a tremendous amount of bandwidth that was allocated to trying to reproduce the grain and it had nothing to do with the resolution of the image that under was you know was underlying that um what we've got now is we've got better compression algorithms we've got potentially more bandwidth available to us um, but also we've got better post-production tools in terms of grain management and, and reducing the impacts of some of that. But what we've also got is really, really good stocks, so 50D and 200 and 250D stocks, which are slower stocks, are much lower grain, and they actually survive the transmission um, chain very, very well by comparison. So um, I've forgotten what the question was. Um, <laughs> In terms of genres. Yeah, yeah. In terms of genres, projects, types of yeah. projects. Yeah. What is it that you guys kind of typically find yourself up against? So what we what we find is that there's lots and lots of sort of high-tech sci-fi type films that are shooting on film. A lot of that is because they do go, go through heavy VFX processes. And actually there's an element of that film, that underlying film look and film capture that makes things look more authentic. They don't always look composited and layered and it's, you know, reliant on your imagination to to carry it. Whereas, you know, we've seen quite a big return to people trying to capture as much stuff in camera. So, you know, making the sets for real, making the models for real, shooting it in, in context as much as possible. But what we've, you know, we've spoken about film there, what we've also got is a tremendous number of commercials and music promos that are back shooting on film again 
I mean, last year through COVID, one of the one of the upsides of COVID was because there was a struggle for people to tour, you know, with the with the music artists. Lots of them were making music promos last year. So I still don't know what the number is, but at our peak, we were doing 50 or 60 music promos a month that were being shot on film. Um, that's carried on. Um, but, you know, one of the characteristics, thing, things that you see cropping up again and again on, on music promos particularly is where we're doing um, oversized scans that we're seeing the edge of frame. You're seeing the perforations at the edge of the frame. And it's that sort of, you know, for the uninitiated, it's the way of saying this is definitely film. Look, it's got sprocket holes in it. And um, punch holes, which are this, you know, circular yeah. black holes that you'll see that are created <laughs> At the beginning and end of labra rolls as a timing as a timing reference, um, those get transferred and those end up in the edit time and time again. And they're just you know they're a byproduct of of what we do, and they're only there as a technical reference. But but you find editors and uh, directors constantly including that sort of stuff within within their edit. Um, but yeah, commercials, music promos, features. But probably the biggest thing that we've seen an increase on in the last year, year and a half has been episodic TV. So, you know, the streamers are keeping lots and lots of people busy, keeping production and post-production busy with these large, high, um, high value uh, television episodics that are going through. And quite a few of those are shooting on film again. And that's, um, that's really, really encouraging, probably in our first two or three years, we were lucky to do one episodic TV program a year. Um, and in the last year and a half, we've probably done six or seven. It's just brilliant, isn't it? That obviously, people are embracing film again. Um, but that obviously, uh, as a result of COVID, obviously, a lot of it was focused on the, the negatives and the downturns. I hadn't even contemplated that, obviously, yeah, uh, as a result of touring stopping, obviously, the music industry needs to be putting some promotion out. Um, so that would completely make sense. Um, so it really is a bit of a mixed bag, then, isn't it, Adrian? You don't know what's going to come in tomorrow, basically. You don't know what project's going to come in tomorrow. We're, we're, we're pretty lucky. I mean, we've got a sort of re re relatively steady stream of commercials and music promos going through all of the time. Um, we'll typically do between 30 and 50 music, uh, commercials every month. That are shooting on film and a lot of those end up being the sort of high-end fashion brands drinks brands car car manufacturers but you also get you know you'll get fast food brands shooting on film so we'll have mcdonald's and kfc shooting on film and they're not the ones that yeah. you would naturally think would would fit that but then they create sort of quite filmatic masterpieces for for these commercials and there's obviously some very very high-end creatives behind it and um and it's important for those brands to, you know, to be as uh, recognised as possible and accepted, you know. But again, you know, you'll get lots of um, charity uh, commercials that will shoot on film. And it's because of that sort of aesthetic that's quite comfortable and natural to watch that, um, that makes a difference and creates some sort of sympathetic you know, connection to the audience. Yeah, so. 100%. Yeah, you don't realise just how many, and, and me watching these commercials on TV, I probably wouldn't be able to pick it out, 
but but like you said it's kind of just a feeling isn't it and it's a kind mm. of atmosphere that it creates yeah and there, there really isn't a commercial break a commercial ad break that we watch on you know national tv in the uk where we haven't done a number of those commercials in every break which is really quite incredible must be such a good feeling um you know i was going to ask you guys how you did cope with covid19 as a company like you said um beneath the surface level obviously projects coming from from places you might not have expected um and things like that but but how did CineLab cope with that impact of COVID-19 at the time so I guess you know the the one thing unfortunately about our business is it is very physical it requires film at the end of the day shooting to come into the lab for it to be processed and then scanned before it becomes electronic and then can be distributed and and um and end up in people's homes if that's where they're editing um, so we actually, you know, we were very, very concerned. We're a relatively small team. We're at 35 people now. But a lot of the people that we've got are very sort of unique and specific in their skills. Um, and there's not an awful lot of crossover. You know, uh, 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 lucky if we're lucky, we've got in some positions, we've got people that are, you know, two or three or four people that can f- perform that job. But there aren't any other companies that we could go and take people from that know what it is we do. So in the first instance, it was just making sure that we kept our staff safe. So it was really reducing to skeleton staff, making sure that we minimised the crossover between key skilled people so that if we had a problem anywhere in the company, that it didn't affect all of the people in that area. We did staggered shifts, all those sorts of things. And a lot of it sort of very sensible and pragmatic and and well ahead of the government's um, <laughs> demands on what you should and shouldn't oh. be doing. So we had a lot of people out of the business well before lockdown um, because of the concerns about, um, about the potential spread. Um, in the 18 months, we've only actually had two confirmed cases within the business. Um, both of them, we had identified that they'd actually caught it outside of the company. Um, Thankfully, neither of them spread it within the company. You know, the rules are pretty pretty clear in terms of making sure you stayed away if you weren't weren't sure. And luckily, they both were, were fine. They didn't have um, significant, you know, they weren't significantly impacted by it. Um, all production did stop. I mean, you know, end of March last year, all of the long-form production stopped. There was no option for production crews to go out and shoot stuff, whether it was a commercial or um or a feature but where probably it did start to resume was a lot of people self-shooting to sort of end of april may time you started to get director cinematographers with a camera going out and shooting their own stuff and then we started to see you know some of the smaller music promos come together as as people worked away around how you know how they could actually get in front of a camera and shoot something and then Probably the long form stuff kicked in around July time, but we had a really, really busy end of the year. You know, August through to the end of the year, we were really, really busy. Um, this year should have carried on from the start, but inevitably, as you know, 4th of January came and a new lockdown started again, and all of a sudden it disrupted those productions. Um, but what we did do uh, at the end of March was we acquired another company that we knew very well, a company called Onset Tech, and they provide digital daily services. So largely what CineLab had 
had its reputation on was basically providing film services around production, shooting on the film, and also, also work for archive restoration clients as well. Um, Onset Tech provide digital daily services. So that's for the, for the productions that are shooting digitally. Uh, some of that work is on set so that they will actually have the kit and the crew on set, taking the feeds direct off the camera, sometimes doing live grade alongside that. So you've got um, review and approval for the, for the production there and then. And a certain amount of that happens here at the lab as well. So it'll be processing the, the daily rushes that will be coming in on digital mags, you know, to, to be um, QC, sound synced, graded, create the editorial files that then go back out. So, you know, really what we've got to is a very good situation where CineLab now provides those services for both film and digital clients. A lot of the time the client's not particularly sure what route they're going to go or they might end up on a hybrid route where they're shooting film and digital for the production. And it just makes it a really, really easy choice for them to, to come to us and, and know that we can support the whole project. Just in kind of regards to your position at the Phoenix Cinema Trust, so obviously you being a board trustee at, at the Trust, how important do you think uh, these independent cinemas and theatres continue to be in this kind of commercialised age? Um, I, you know, I, my involvement with Phoenix really only started... Um, at the beginning of this year and it was really in a sort of response to knowing how difficult the um cinemas had suffered over the past year with with covid and the, and the lockdown and you know the phoenix is the oldest continually running purpose-built cinema in the country it was built around 1910 um it was my local cinema after i finished at ravensbourne i was living in east Finchley, so it was my local cinema for for a period of um, about seven or eight years where, where I was very close to it. So when you realize what's happening with the economics on, on those exhibition spaces, you sort of think, you know, it really requires everybody's efforts to, to retain those. And I don't have any doubt at all that the feeling is very different going to watch a film in a cinema, whether it's a, drama, whether it's a sci-fi blockbuster, um, you know, there's certain films that really deserve to be seen on the big screen and it's the best place to see them. And I'll deliberately not watch them until I've seen them on the big screen. Um, is that important for everybody? I don't know. I mean, we're, you know, we're obviously entrenched in this business, so it's a really, really important, um, important thing for people in the industry to support. But I think you know, just like continuing to support people who wanted to shoot on film by establishing CineLab when we did it 2013, 2013. Um, really important that those cinema venues are sustained and that they continue to be available for people. Um, you know, so I know that it's difficult and there's still a lot of concerns from people about, about um, the spread of, of COVID still, but a lot of the cinemas have put really, really good measures in place and there's still an element of, of social distancing expected with, with separation in bookings between, um, between parties. So, you know, people should be more comfortable in going back to the cinema, but obviously 
should only go if if they're happy to do so. Um, and I don't doubt that it will return. I think it's just getting it back into being a habit. Um, you know, know lots and lots of friends who would regularly go to the cinema weekly or at least monthly. And I think we're not back at that stage yet. And it's going to take a little while before we're back at that stage. But the thing that's been a significant impact is that a tremendous number of the films that we've worked on over the last couple of years still haven't been released. So we're still waiting for No Time to Die. It was finished. You know, we were supposed to be going to the pre preview in April 2019 and, um, and it's due for release in October now. Um, we've got Edgar Wright's film Last Night in Soho, which is due for release in October also. Um, and again, you know, these are productions that we finished working on a year, year and a half ago. So it's really, really weird seeing them sort of stacked up waiting. But equally until the, the distributors and studios start to see decent revenues coming back from the box office, it particularly challenges how they continue to invest in new films. And I think that's where the streamers have done a really, really good job of, of bolstering the industry by keeping a tremendous amount of work going through production. Um, but, you know, we really, really do want to see the cinemas sort of getting getting back to, to normal and back on their feet. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, me personally as well. Absolutely love going to cinema, obviously pre-COVID. And it's definitely something that I need to get back to ASAP, basically. So this one's a question that we ask at the end of every podcast. Um, and it's just, if, if you could describe it in one word, what do you envision for the future of the broadcasting industry? One word? <laughs> oh, God, I can't. <laughs> you know, I, I think inevitably we'll see the continued spread of niche content being made available, being made widely available. And that's because of how much easier it is to distribute content over, over IP networks, particularly. Um, but it's, you know, it's gone in two direct, oh, it's gone in three directions. One of them is quality and it's great to see quality in the home, you know, surpass that of cinema in, in lots of respects. Um, it's great to see the variability of content and access to niche content. And I guess, the third thing is the sort of whole time shifting opportunity around it of being able to watch on demand and not be stuck with a schedule. And those are those are three very, very important factors, yes. which I can't see us, us going backwards with any of them. Yeah, 100%. But if you did have to pick one word from any of that, you could say niche if you want, you could say on demand, What which, which would you pick? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd probably say niche. Niche. Yeah. A lot. No, I like yeah. that. I, I think it, it uh, like I said, it, you could say that and I instantly know what you're talking about there. It's it's obviously that niche content that, you know, we need kind of more of to appeal to people, uh, mm. you know, that, that aren't currently being satisfied by, by that kind of content, um, which I think is a really interesting point. So obviously, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today, answering some of those questions. It's been really insightful. My pleasure. Uh, are there any exciting plans in the pipeline for, for Cine Lab that you can tell us about today, or is it all under wraps at the moment? Oh my gosh, um, <laughs> I, not not really an awful lot I can talk about today. We've had a pretty um, pretty busy period through lockdown. Um, you know, it was an opportunity to do lots of housekeeping to tidy up lots of lots of systems. Yes. I feel like we're in a really really strong place where you know the technologies underpinning the sort of sustained growth and expansion of the of the business and really that's that's what it's about it's you know it's more more of what we do well yeah. that that i see happening over the next 18 months um 
and uh, it, it will be the focus on continuing to grow the business, really. Yep, cracking stuff, so more of the same. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to inquire about anything that you guys offer? We've got really obvious email address which is inquiries at cinelab.london um you can get me on adrian at cinelab.london as well if you want to message me directly um you know we're relatively relatively small team but um but you can connect to us pretty easily and uh in terms of the lab side of things we're now just starting to get back on track with um having visitors getting people on tours getting people understanding what happens sort of behind the scenes within a lab and and we're very very welcome to to you know host events for for people to come around who've got an interest in what we do yeah no i might have to uh, inquire about that then a bit further down the line once covid restrictions are lifted because that would be, definitely Good be stuff. something that i'd be interested in um you're very welcome brilliant stuff so thank you so much again adrian really do appreciate it good stuff good to talk to you now all right speak Take to you care. soon